Of all the liturgies of Holy Week, I think, for me, Good Friday is my favorite one. What we're doing this evening is uh, very old. I've said this before. Uh, in the early 400s, a pious woman, or perhaps a member of a religious community named Egeria, went on a pilgrimage from Gaul to Jerusalem. And as she went, and particularly in Jerusalem, she meticulously recorded what she had seen in terms of what the liturgy was like in Jerusalem in about 430 A.D. And her diary has been published. I have a copy of it, and it's called Egeria's Travels. It's obviously in English and not in the language she originally wrote it in, but it is an enormous resource for people who want to know uh, what it means when we invoke Anton Baumstark's law, who lived at the end of the 19th century, at the most solemn and holy times of the year, the most ancient liturgies are used. So what we're doing today, or this evening, is, is very old. On Good Friday and Palm Sunday, over the last three or four years, I have spoken about my dis-ease with a tendency uh, certainly in our church and in other churches, to um, issue focusing on things like the crucifixion and the passion narrative, because uh, there are some who just feel it's simply so violent they can't make any sense out of it at all, and why in the world would a religious tradition emerge from that central symbol uh, in Christianity? And so they find this problematic. Well, I don't find it problematic, and so I want to say some things about the attempts over time to trivialize this. Uh, it's not a new phenomenon. And so I want to read something to you I've read before from the poet W.H. Auden. Many years ago, he wrote a book which was a collection of things that he'd collected over time in alphabetical order. And in some of the entries, he wrote his own uh, section in his, his own writing. And so this is under, in alphabetical order, Friday, comma, good. <laughs> Just as we were all potentially in Adam when he fell, so we were all potentially in Jerusalem on the first Good Friday before there was an Easter a Pentecost, a Christian, or a church. It seems to me worthwhile asking ourselves who we should have been and what we should have been doing. None of us, I am certain, would ima will imagine himself as one of the disciples cowering in agony of spiritual despair and physical terror. Very few of us are big wheels enough to see ourselves as Pilate or good churchmen enough to see ourselves as a member of the Sanhedrin. In my most optimistic mood, I see myself as a Hellenized Jew from Alexandria visiting an intellectual friend. We are walking along, engaged in philosophical argument. 
our path takes us past the base of Golgotha. Looking up, we see an all-too-familiar sight, three crosses surrounded by a jeering crowd. Frowning with prim distaste, I say it's disgusting the way the mob enjoys such things. Why can't the authorities execute criminals humanely and in private by giving them hemlock to drink as they did with Socrates? Then, averting my eyes from the disagreeable spectacle, I resume our fascinating discussion about the nature of the true, the good, and the beautiful. Now, this is not the only location uh, for explaining something uh, about all of this. In his book, uh, Dean Allen Jones, when he was the dean of Grace Cathedral, wrote a book called Reimagining Christianity, How to Keep Your Faith Without Losing Your Mind. And he said in the book, an Englishman who was an expert on Eastern thought was touring Grace Cathedral in San Francisco a few years ago. On looking at the Spanish crucifix near the south doors, he unthinkingly said to me, why would anyone worship that? The crucifix is late 13th century and is very beautiful, a picture of poignant and deep love and sadness. I don't think he meant to offend, but I wanted to react with an equally crass question. Why do Buddhists revere that grinning little fat guy? <laughs> this is where this stuff leads. <laughs> so we need to be careful about it. I want to preach on all three of the readings from Isaiah, from the letter to the Hebrews, and from the gospel, just fleetingly, but I want to say something by way of introduction. This is really a quotation from Gerard Sloyan, a famous New Testament scholar, at least in my generation of seminarian. The early Christians saw Jesus on every page of the Bible. The Bible they knew was the Greek Bible, not the Hebrew. It certainly would have been the case for the author of John's Gospel, which we read from today. Matthew and Paul would have known the Bible in Hebrew, and Palestinian hearers, the paraphrases in the Aramaic, uh, known as Targums. When I was in seminary, I had to read a book for my Old Testament class uh, that was a... a uh, compendium of the Targums so that you could see what the paraphrases were like the people in Palestine who spoke Aramaic and not Greek or Hebrew, by then nobody did, uh, what the paraphrases said. I mention this because the early Christians and the Christians who began to write about the meaning of the cross, among other things, found in the Bible the person of Christ in each word and story, precept, and psalm. So today, the, the reading from the Hebrew Bible is from Isaiah, and it's known as the fourth servant song. 
So there must have been three before this one. And this is the fourth servant song, which is pretty hard to read or to listen to, isn't it? But the early Christians read this, most of them in the Greek Old Testament called the Septuagint, and some in the Hebrew. And they read this and they heard this and they said, this is a clear reference to Jesus. And we see that throughout the grand narrative beginning in Genesis, the prediction of, of the sort of center of the universe in the words and works of Jesus and of his death and resurrection. I should have said this at the beginning, but we need to remember that the early Christians who created the liturgies that we celebrate during Holy Week, the last three days, the Triduum Sacrum, uh, understood them to be a unity, one thing. And our tendency is to say, this is Maundy Thursday, the institution of the Eucharist, this is Good Friday, Jesus' crucifixion, and then we have Holy Saturday, the Great Vigil, and Easter, uh, where we now celebrate the resurrection. And they saw it all as one thing, even though they discreetly, D-I-S-C-R-E-T-E, uh, understood this uh, to be one thing. And so in the course of making sense of this, they began to say this servant song refers to what Jesus went through. And we can see it in the narrative of our own sacred scriptures. If we'd have just paid attention, what God has been working from the beginning and how we understand the meaning of these things in light of the Christ event. So we move, in this sense, to Reginald Fuller, who is one of the great biblical scholars of the 20th century. Because the early church saw the cross in light of Jesus' whole ministry, it found in Isaiah 53, what we just heard, an almost perfect prophecy of the Passion, and used it as a quarry for its own theological statements about the Passion. They are an attempt to capture in words for those who did not have the direct experience of the crucifixion, the meaning of a real flesh and blood history as the action of God pro nobis for our salvation. So it's important when we think about this to understand the Bible, the whole of the Bible as a narrative. And the early Christians were, in some circles, they would refer to this today, scripture-soaked. They understood these texts and knew exactly what they were talking about uh, when they referred to them. So we move now to Hebrews, and the re reading from Hebrews is about what has been affected or by Jesus' death on the cross and ultimately his resurrection. And the epistle begins, Therefore, my friends, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us approach with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience 
and our bodies washed with pure water. And elsewhere in the letter to the Hebrews, he says, what this does for us is give us confidence to now understand ourselves as part of a royal priesthood and that through our baptism, we become part of the priesthood of all believers. And we are able to pierce this curtain and enter with the Savior, the Holy of Holies. And that's a great thing. You know, we should remind ourselves that that's possible even in the midst of the Sturm und Drang of the Silicon Valley. Right? That we can pierce the curtain. And that we have been empowered to be God's people in the world. And therefore, an important thing is, too, to be able to labor to create a society where it is easier for people to be good. Mother McNeil, in her sermon last night, said, we need to be out there. And if what we're doing tonight uh, has any application at all, it's not as a self-congratulatory exercise but as empowerment to go out there and make a difference in big and small ways. It's an important thing. This epistle talks about Jesus' sympathy for human weakness as the result of his own earthly experiences. The answer to his prayer for deliverance that was rejected, let this cup pass from me, but if not, thy will be done, taught him obedience. Have you, ever done, have you ever been in a situation where you knew you had to do something and you didn't want to do it and you were dreading it and you knew what was ahead and how finally you realized you can't go around it, under it, over it, you have to go through it. And that's part of the learning from our understanding of the cross. The author of the letter to the Hebrews understands all of us are caught up in Christ's sacrifice and are enabled in him to offer ourselves, our souls and bodies in union with his sacrifice and are in turn transformed by that sacrifice. In the reading from John's Gospel, we read a very short version you can read the long version or you can read a shorter version, but this is an even shorter version that we read today. So it avoids uh, some of the early part of this reading where Pilate, uh, there's a lot of uh, potentially anti-Semitic stuff there. So this is a way of reading uh, the core of what this gospel is all about and that for John, Jesus becomes now the Paschal Lamb. What's part of the grand narrative? The Passover. This is occurring during the Passover. And so we are now moving with the Savior over the Pass Passover. And his death, in his own words, announce, announces the completion of the sacrifice. It is finished. All has been accomplished. In the Latin text, it's consummatum est, which is perhaps a more uh, powerful word in, the in that language. So this is a perfect time to talk about one of my pet issues on Good Friday, and that's the doctrine of the atonement. Some of you are going to say, oh no, is he going to do that again? 
Let me quote again from Alan Jones so that you know I'm going to say some things that seem to contradict this. And uh, it's important, so I'm going to use this as the starting place. Making God vengeful in the name of justice has left thousands of souls deeply wounded and lost to the church forever. What I'm going to read to you are three or four theories of the atonement. People began to to say, well, what was actually accomplished and how do we understand this and how does it connect to our circumstances in life in some ways? And what I just talked about was one of the theories. By the way, there's a great book that was written a long time ago called Creeds in the Making. And in this book, there was a whole chapter on the atonement. And the writer says, you know, the the theories of the atonement are just that. They're theories. And so that means that you and I are free to make up our own theory of the atonement. So what I'm reading to you is not the law of the Medes and the Persians. But it's the way in which we have, in our interpretive life together as church, have talked about this. My favorite one is called Christus Victor, and this is the most ancient one. It is uh, maybe for the first four or five centuries of Christianity was the reigning understanding of the, uh, of the atonement. It is the most preferable theory in my view. Humanity has fallen into the grip of dark powers. Christ comes into this situation and battles against these powers. Christ comes uh, against these powers with his cross, came the overwhelming victory, bringing deliverance and new life to humankind. The one that is the most problematic is what we now call the penal substitutionary theory of the atonement. And most evangelical Christians not only prefer this, but they believe it is the only authentic explanation of what the atonement in fact is. And it means that Jesus uh, took the weight for all of us, but what he did was pay a price that we all owed. And he died under that weight. N.T. Wright, the great New Testament scholar, said, it's sort of, he's English, he said, it's like in an English public school where a tyrannical headmaster is dealing with unruly boys and he has his son in the school and said, just beat up on him and that'll be okay. That's not a theory of the atonement I think is useful for people in my own view. But some people are going to tell you that it's penal substitution. The other one that I like is something called the moral exemplar theory. And we got this one from Peter Abelard, the great medieval theologian. There was a play some years ago called uh, Eloise and Abelard, I think. And it was about the relationship that she had with Abelard. He talked about that looking at the cross the image of this self-sacrifice has an effect on our uh, moral understanding of how we should be self-giving. 
and that Jesus reflects the ultimate self-giving in his earthly ministry, and it's something that we should model. After hearing all of this, my own view is, how do we understand our own suffering? What do we mean when we talk about suffering? I've been through uh, some stuff recently where I've had to come to grips with the issue of suffering. Suffering, technically, is the disruption of inner human harmony caused by physical, mental, spiritual, and emotional forces experienced as isolating and threatening to our very existence. As the deprivation of human good, suffering is inseparable from the mystery of evil. However, suffering and evil are not caused by God, the author of all good, but are inherent in the universe's natural processes and in the uniqueness of human freedom in the misuse of free will that is the moral evil of sin. So when we think about the crucifixion or whatever kinds of crucifixions that we go through, we maybe need to do some reflecting about our own part in this. And how in some ways we need to own up to that, that it's an important thing, that we need to face the fact that our own suffering is often the result of our own actions. My friend David Holton, who was in seminary with me, is an Anglican priest from the Anglican Church of Canada. And when he was in seminary with me, he preached at one of the liturgies in the chapel. And he talked about the five wounds of Jesus. You know, his hands, his feet, his side. And for Roman Catholics, devotion to the five wounds is one of the more hair-raising objects of piety, right? And for most of us, it's like, what? There's a church in San Jose named after the, five, the Church of the Five Wounds. It's a Portuguese church in San Jose. And his purpose was not to encourage those of us who heard this homily to uh, immediately become involved in somehow uh, the piety of the five wounds. But he used them as exemplary of the fact that we need to understand how we have received these wounds. And more to the point, as we become serious about our self-reflection, we need to think about how we've afflicted others with these wounds, that we have wounded others. And that when you begin to think to yourself, what is the meaning of the cross? How do I make any sense of that? Every one of us has experienced something like this in our life. Whether we're able to give it voice or we're able to think that through, we know what it is. It's not beyond us. And the cross helps us and reminds us of that. In German, this day is called Karfreitag. Hard Friday. Jesus did indeed die hard to win for us the softest, gentlest treasure. Life through him and with him and in him.
And maybe that's why English-speaking Christians call this Friday good. <laughs>